We're continuing our studies in the life of David. And it is not just the life of David, it's a heart of David. Uh, hence the reason for the series title is David, a man after God's own heart. Yes, our desire is to learn to become like David so that we would also be a man or woman of God's own heart. But in studying these uh, stories, um, there is a temptation to surface it and to become analyzing as a man-centered way of perspective uh, doing it. And then it could, our study could be easily become moralistic lessons. So today, uh, we have another episode, an interesting episode of David's life. But I think it's, it's helpful for us to remind ourselves our aim in this series. There are twofold aim, as I mentioned in the introductory message. Number one is to learn from David's life and heart about how we too can become a man and woman after God's own heart. This is obvious ones. And so far we've seen lessons from David's life events and his rise and escapes, even today, trials and living in a uh, Adullam cave, becoming king, and God renewing his covenant from Abraham days. And then it is often called a Davidic covenant, that which affects us because it's a covenant about Lord Jesus, son of David, as the nickname for Messiah came out of that. Fall, his fall with Bathsheba, uh, the many war campaigns that he his expansion was the largest uh, geographically and success of his nation. Uh, and then his family travels, all kinds of travels. His son rebelled against him, uh, Absalom. And the census, doing census in a wrong motive. And listen, lessons from David's relationship. We also saw Goliath, Saul, Jonathan, Michael, Samuel. And next Sunday, not next Sunday, Wade, Wade will be speaking. The following Sunday, we'll be studying an interesting study on Ahimelech and Doeg. As a two different contrasting character. And then this... Uh, person, it's hard to pronounce, Mephibosheth. There's an interesting character in Old Testament, oftentimes disregarded and overlooked, but very interesting, important character in David's life. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. And obviously Bathsheba and Absalom. Another person, Uzzah, comes out come to my mind. And lessons from David's Psalms. David's Psalms, his journal entries, poems, and prayers, and songs. 
So we get to see the glimpses of his heart. But more importantly, than even compared to the first objective, first goal, the second objective in our study is so important. It's to get to know God and his ways. Behind the scene, who is really the actor and subject of history? God himself. And so we get to see, because of David's life, because David's fall and rise, and his right doing thing, doing the right things and doing the wrong things, we see God's character responding and reacting to, it, to that. And his way of bringing and David to become a man of God. So there are some themes in First and Second Samuel: God's kingship, God's kingdom. The New Testament God's kingdom idea actually is a continuation of that, but this one is more literal. Uh, theocracy happened in during uh, early days of Israel, a nation, and then. Um, we see God's providential guidance in making a man or woman of God. Today, we see especially that, and God's sovereign will, power, and wisdom. So His way, God's way, is not like our ways. If you do not understand that, and if you don't have a faith eyes, Christian life can be most frustrating. Or you become a follower of heretic teachings like the prosperity gospel. And David's um, life also reveals in God's messianic promises and his renewing covenant. Davidic covenant becomes an introduction to Jesus' life and the second son, a second person of the Trinity. The incarnation happens and which turns into the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is introduced by the Son. Here's what I want to do today. Uh, three and one. That's something that we need to think about. Remember that. Obviously, one person is more than one person because Saul himself has his army, his whole nation is under his sovereign reign, his uh, kingship, a, a wrongful kingship now because of his disobedience to God. And it goes on 10 years, even starting now, right? But there are three people who protects, who helps David's escape. So first thing that we want to do is take a look at those three provisions that God makes through people and then pull out, instead of making moralistic lessons, let's ask what is God doing? What is God's way like? And that will be a very important lesson for all of us. Here's the first provision that God's made in David's initial escape uh, from Saul. It's none other than David's wife, Michael. 
She warns and helps David escape through the window. First Samuel chapter 19, verse, beginning with verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image, this is an idol, was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answers, answered Saul, she said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Michael is King Saul's daughter, but she genuinely loved him. And the first provision God makes is through this woman. Unlike jealous Saul, Michael went out of his way, her way, to not only warn him, let him down through the window. It's almost a, you know, visualizing like a movie scene to it, right? And she doesn't stop there in order to give him some time to flee. She puts an idol, use a goat's hair, and as if David is lying there, and the messenger came, and she said he's sick, and King David, King Saul is just upset. Bring him the whole bed with him. So I don't care if he's lying down there or not. He's sick or not. So I'm going to just kill him today, this morning. And then when that happened, they found out obviously it's not David. And she even had this wisdom, quick wisdom to say, you know, what can I do? He said he's going to kill me if I let him go. I, you know, Saul probably uh, intuitively knew that, but it's what she's saying as his daughter saying she couldn't do anything. Oftentimes, when things are rough, what does it feel like? We feel like God is not there. We feel like God is not doing a thing. Don't you care? That's what we, we, use, we might say. But there are things that we cannot see. The, what God is doing, the God's wisdom and heart and his ways are far different, far deeper and higher than ours. 
This is God's mercy. And there is a tension though, isn't it? So I'll get to that tension a little later. Let's look at second escape. Staying with prophet Samuel protects David by the Spirit of God. Verse 18 now. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him, told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Neoeth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is in Neoeth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of, of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. This is another movie scene-like story. You know, you know what's happening? Obviously, Samuel as the prophet, his protege, his young prophets were um, learning and singing, worshiping God, prophesying together. And that God's protection was all over them, and David being with them. And Saul is relentless. He sends his messengers again to get him. So as they're getting him and they're seeing it, the Holy Spirit takes over, and then he, they, they were prophesying, not necessarily prophesying in the sense of the word prediction of the future, prophesying by praising the words about God and to God, those things were happening. He sent another group of messengers. Same thing happens. Now, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Neoth in Ramah. And, they, and he went there to Neoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Neoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day. And all that night, thus it is, say, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This is, in a way, God's humor. The Holy Spirit takes over Saul himself. So this isn't anything kinky. Just, he becomes like a childlike. There's no intention of killing anyone or jealousy or envy. So... Just imagining him praising God in the words of the goodness of the Lord and character and attributes of God all come out. He's laying <laughs> naked. 
This too is God's provision of mercy for David. Now we turn to a third story. Uh, <clears throat> last week I was uh, a little bit torn between the two things. Should I lump these story as one? Or should I take that story, most interesting story, most dramatic story of Jonathan and David's friendship and save it for later. And I decided to save it for later. So we heard a lot about David and Jonathan's friendship already, but this is most moving scene. Third escape. Jonathan helps David escape with his loyal friendship. Now it's chapter 20, verse 34 below. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I think I need to give us a little bit of background here. The chapter is too long, so we're skipping several verses, right? So previous chapter and previous story in these verses, it comes out this way. The king's table is not only for the people who are privileged and his kinship and the, uh, his favorite subjects, but also it is a requirement. So David, fearing for his life, decided to skip that king's table, mealtime. The first time he didn't show up, King Saul is saying, oh, I'm sure he's not clean. He's not. In other words, ceremony unclean means that he touched dead body or something, and obviously uh, in, in the law, you're not supposed to present it present in those circumstances. So he let it go. Second day, when he doesn't show up, he decided to ask Jonathan, where is son, where is the son of Jesse? And Jonathan makes excuse. David asked for permission to let him go to Bethlehem because there is uh, there, his, his clan's worship and sacrifice, and his brother required him to come. So I let him go. And, and Saul just blew it, and he lost it. He curses his son, you son of shameful, naked woman. He calls his, his wife a shameful, naked woman, Whatever that shame that brings up. And don't you know, this is almost like an evil uh, father. Not just the Asian father, but every father. <laughs> I did this to love you because I love you kind of thing. Right? Don't you know, with David, there is no kingdom for you or our house. So there will be no place for you, crown prince. So don't you see that I'm doing this for you? That's what he's saying. And Jonathan, why 
Are you doing this evil thing against, against God's chosen? So that's what we're at the beginning. Jonathan rose. He was fierce in anger, righteous anger. And verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out. Oh, there's one more thing. Sorry. David is obviously frightened. He's just worried. And he is even doubtful whether Jonathan will come through in loyalty going against taking risks of treason with his dad, King Saul, whether he will really tell him and help him to escape. And Jonathan vows, okay, let's do this. Go out there in the, in the field and hide, hide yourself. When I come out, I will act like I'm practicing target sh- shooting, bow. And then my boy, the, the, the Aaron boy, will send him. And when I say, isn't the arrow this way? That means everything's safe. You could come. There's no danger whatsoever anymore. Or if I say, isn't the arrow beyond you? That means there is a danger. Flee from this place. Okay? Is that clear? So that's what's happening. So verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry! Be quick! Do not stay! Actually, he's actually talking to David in secrecy. right? So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you, me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is a, such a beautiful friendship. I've said it enough, but I feel compelled to say it again. In this homophobic society, 
or anything that is thick and really intense, it must be a sexual, homosexual love. But we are to live out this kind of true biblical friendship among our brothers, among our sisters. And it is really congruent with the vision that God gives us. And I'm afraid that we're going to just cruise along with it in the name of just getting along with each other. And our generation is very difficult to understand simple command. Lord Jesus calls us to love one another and we're looking for reasons why. Because it pleases him. Because it is a command. Because the Bible is full of, you know, Apostle John, who used to be called the sons of thunder because of his temper, because of anger. His redundant message at his old age, my little children, love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves knows God. God's love abides in him. So God uses Jonathan's loyal friendship as a provision for mercy for David. So the stories are very simple, isn't it? Now we want to pull back Ask this question. What can we learn about God and God's ways so that in our relationship with God that we will respond and walk alongside of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, with faith? Here's the first lesson. God uses the wilderness to train his people to make us men and women of God, especially before God uses us greatly. So scripture interacts with each other. This is uh, from New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. By wilderness, I refer, I'm referring to that in maybe in two different, two similar ways. But wilderness is a season of life that God brings difficulty. Just like David. He's anointed to be saying, to be king of Israel, but it takes 10 plus years of wilderness. 
Oh, wasn't David's faith glorious? Because his faith, he defeated Goliath and honored the name of the Lord for in, amongst the Israelites. But if we look at the scripture, that young, ambitious Dave, David was not ready yet. He's not broken yet. He's not yet fully got a man after God's own heart. So he brings his severe mercy his grace and training. So this, today's escape is a beginning of his life as a fugitive. So next time we will hear the episode about being so hungry and he visits, he visits the, the priest named Ahimelech. And he gets help. And because of Ahimelech, gives him help. And all kinds of trouble happens. And they all the, the prophets, I mean the priests, priests were slaughtered, by the way. And then he goes to a cave called, uh, in the place of Adullam. And that's the place that we see a turning point of gathering a community of people who are least and last of the society. The people who are, uh, who had too much debt, people who are rejected by society, they're, they, they're gathering together. It, it is literally a gathering of misfits. It feels like a church. New Testament church. But there is not a day. Because this is the reason why we're going to look at David's psalm. Because we get to see his heart. And all these heartbreaking confession comes out of David's psalm around that time. But let's consider other biblical examples. Is it an exception? No. When you think about Joseph, he... God giving him the dream. So that's man-centered way of looking at the scripture. You, you probably heard that kind of message also too. We ought to have a big vision, big dream for God. Like Joseph did. Now Joseph didn't have an intention to dream or have a vision. God gave him vision that he's Father and mother and his, all these brothers are bowing down before him. He got in trouble. He was a little cocky even sharing that story. But from that point on, he was sold to e Egypt as a slavery. And he made some progress. And all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife accused him wrongly about rape because he, she was just dying to get him to in her bed together, but she, he would not agree with his integrity. So he's, he's sent to the prison. 
So when you're thinking about all this, from the surface, we get frustrated. What is God doing? You know, God, let me give you what to do and what you ought to do. Especially in our lives. When we hit this obstacle after obstacle and road bumps and road bumps after. And here's a tension that I mentioned. God's grace, his loving intention, he brings a wilderness. And he makes a provision. But you know what? He's in, in his sovereignty, God can even use the evil ones. Like Saul. Saul's jealousy, God sent his harmful spirit. And obviously God is not cause of the, of the jealousy or any kind of evil. But just like the Pharaoh did, just like Judas Iscariot did, within all own their evil intention, God is actually allowing him, allowing them more. And he uses the evil to discipline us. Babylon was the uncircumcised secular pagans was taking over people of God, chosen Israelites. And Jeremiah, as he preached the right message, all these false prophets are saying, who are you kidding? We are the people of the covenant. There will be no way that God will let the uncircumcised to invade us and to take us over and to take us to exile. Well, that's what he exactly did. Do you have some difficulty? And I mentioned two ways, right? A season of wilderness. They're like a school of wilderness. People often uh, use that language. The David had that 10 plus years and Moses had 40 years of wilderness as a shepherd. And Joseph uh, during those times. Oh, Job. Good thing my brother, before he had all these extreme conditions now, He's one of his most favorite preaching series is on Job. And he's, it's often requested. And I gave that sermon and I just realized it's on YouTube, everyone. So I could just, you know, uh, refer to that YouTube link now. But the point is, back then he was, he was struggling with a kidney disease and dialysis. And he had a transplant. But towards the end of the transplant, 20-some years of transplant kidney functions go down. And all kinds of problems were happening. God's provision was that he was meditating on Job in the beginning of his journey of uh, transplant and dialysis, in the, in the end of his losing his transplanted kidney before he had this PML, uh, uncurable brain disease, because of e immune systems were just uh, 
such a poor condition that it affects, he doesn't have immune systems in his brain. Job was the person, not because of evil thing that he did, but God in his own sovereign will, we will not clearly know, but at least the wisdom and insight that we get to see is God breaks Job to acknowledge God's sovereignty. He sees God in a different way. Apostle Paul is another person. He has thorn in his body. It's some kind of sickness. We don't know what that is exactly. Some people could, you know, uh, allude to the fact that he has a eyesight problem, but, but it's probably some kind of vision problem. Some people will say seizure, that he will have a seizure all, all, now and then. But don't know. He asked God to heal him three times. And three times the answer was no. Why? Because that's my mercy. My grace is sufficient for you. Because he was a prophet who had most spiritual gift. And even the dead came alive because of uh, Apostle Paul. And his handkerchief, his, anything that people touch will get healed. And he said spiritual vision. He, he went to what we know as a heaven, as a mere man, to keep, to keep him humble. God brings wilderness. And he doesn't stop there. The question is this. With our small mind, we're telling God what to do because we do not understand what sovereignty looks like. If God is ultimately sovereign, sovereignly good, in other words, there is no side of his forgetfulness. Oh, I didn't mean to uh, let that happen to you, but oh, I'm sorry, I, I looked away and you got hit by a car. and I Nothing like that. Do, do you know even one theologian said, God gives you exactly what you need. There is not even one slight more unnecessary trial that you go through. That's what it means to believe in sovereignty of God. The question is why? What's going on? And C.S. Lewis's famous quote comes to my mind. And some of you heard this before. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his own journey, he experienced much pain, loss of his loved one. Lewis writes, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I'm sure if you have experienced any kind of severe trial, trial in, his own, in your own experience, 
in your own uh, estimation. I have. Yes, God got my attention. Then the question is, what is his primary goal in bringing wilderness into our lives? That's number, number two. In wilderness, God breaks our stubborn self so that we will no longer be self-reliant, but God-reliant to be used by God. As I mentioned, this is a, a Apostle Paul's confession. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, and it should leave me. The thorn, the thorn, the sickness that he had. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a paradoxical perspective on suffering, on weakness. You, you pick up any books on leadership manual, leadership imaginable insights, the top-notch people, the, the one thing is clear. Build yourself on your strength. Ignore or improve your weaknesses. You know why? Because humble brokenness is what God desires from each one of us. Why? Because of our fallen heart, it's innately prideful. What that means is that we want to declare our self-autonomy before God. Even, even with all the good intention and self-determination, have you done that? I certainly have. Oh, I am going to be de determined to be humble. And like Tuang, I see myself full of pride and anger at times. And I could excuse myself. Oh, that's my personality. I'm a lion. I'm a born leader. I'm a goal-getter, goal-setter. I have a healthy drive. But in the midst of all that, if I become truly honest, is there are things that I cannot control. I really want to be humble. People, I really mean it. You might not believe it. I'm, you know, you, you think that I'm s such a, a driven person and, and when I'm asking you to do something and I don't go away, I come back and back. You know, I'll give you seven reasons why you should share a crossway story in spite of your fear of public speaking or in spite of the reason that you are introverted? 
our self-determination is not enough. When we fall flat because of God's heavy hand on us, on us I have. So few, there are a few times I feel just utterly broken by God. And I realize now, in hindsight, not at that moment, that is God's loving hand, God's grace for me. That is actually good for me. Psalmist said, it was good for me to be afflicted. Before I afflicted, I went astray. Now I obey your law. So whether seasonal wilderness or little difficulties and minor trials that you go through, do you see that as God's purpose? Or are you frustrated right now? Are you impatient? If you didn't get anything, I'm praying the Holy Spirit open your ears and eyes to this. God loves you more than you can imagine. And his love is not like, like ours, fickle love. His love is holy, sovereign love. He wills the best for us, for his children, if you belong to Christ. So when not pleasurable things happen, when, when you are taking a long way around, The question is that do you have faith in his eyes? Do you see God's loving purpose for you and his supreme wisdom in the seemingly long way around towards your readiness for God's purpose? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, wrote this, and I read this when I was uh, uh, early 20s. Young, ambitious Paul. Get out of my way. I'm going to get things done. Do not waste my, my time, Paul. And I didn't understand. I didn't really like it. He writes, a true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead, but it is he is or she is forced into a position of leadership by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of the external situation. True leader, he clarifies, will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but will be humble, gentle, self-sacrificing, and altogether as ready to follow as to lead. When the, Holy, when the Spirit makes it clear that a wiser and more gifted man than himself has appeared. Now I see the wisdom. I concur. I really wholeheartedly agree. And God have mercy on our, our nation, our church. Because what does it mean for a church to be Repentant, 
Wotan's mean for evangelical Christians to repent and return to Christ? To see this humility and to see this uh, behind the scene that God is glorifying, being glorified for our service. And there is a true deepest joy there for each Christ follower. That should be the true Christian culture. Left and right, people are building an enterprise. Left and right, it is okay to just uh, PR for your church. It's called branding. I know, I, it took some marketing courses also too. I feel tempted to talk about our church in that way also. Is that God's way? And how about you? In your own life, do you really desire not no desire to lord it over God's heritage? You serve in this community of church not for recognition, not for your self-actualization, not for your namesake, but the glory and honor of Christ's name. And I'll tell you, if you have that motive, and if you have that bubbling joy, nothing, no one can take that away. You don't need external things. May Crossway grow into this brokenness, that our culture is so clear that humility and brokenness, humble brokenness is something we cling to. There's a third lesson, and I'm going to close with this. Even in the wilderness, God gives us his provision and guidance through his sovereign will and wisdom. There are two verses, one from Isaiah 43, verse 19. The Lord is saying, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In other words, if you are really going through a tough time these days, Life is very difficult for you. Know that God is active. God is making a way. The tension between Saul, God is allowing, even giving him harmful spirit to intensify the school of wilderness for David, but in that he will protect him. He will provide mercy. He will provide guidance. It's just right for David's training. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though, this is David's psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That means Christians are sometimes are going through close death-like experiences. The valley of the shadow of the death. The difference? I will know, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Provisions. So, the most important thing, if we are journeying through difficult times of wilderness, the question is this. Do I believe 
and trust and remember goodness and mercy of the Lord? Do I cling to it? Or is the reflection of God distorted that I actually have wrong thoughts about God, that God is like a policeman with a bat and waiting in the corner for me to make a mistake so he could bang on my head. Cruel God. Suppose your son is going through, a five-year-old, six-year-old son has to go through ear surgery. And then you're holding on to him. He doesn't understand. Why, Mom? Why that? Why would you let them do this to me? Son, sit down. Let me give you a chart. This is reason why, medical reason. No, we heartbreaking uh, embrace. We endure with tears with him. It's good for him. So if you look at me, I'm St. Paul. In many ways, God guided and blessed me in several ways. And, and even my previous ministries, I think God's provision was there. I learned so much, and I thank God for that church. But there are times that I went through, hit rock bottom and depressed, and even midlife crisis happened the meaning of life and all those things and uh, is my identity attached so much attached to being a pastor if i'm not a pastor who am i what am i so at crossway what's the difference i really believe the more i become broken in my stubborn will and god rules over me easily I'm a happier person. At the same time, I am most ready to be used by God. Same with this church. Same with you. I close with this quote by Tim Keller. Uh, He wrote wrote a book on uh, suffering and journeying through suffering together. Very insightful. Here's some things that I really like I could not not share. Some sufferings, Keller writes, is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrong patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah, imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph, sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose, no other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone. And so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Is it enough for you, brothers and sisters, that you see no purpose, pragmatic purpose, 
other than God wants you closer to his bosom. That you will feel his intimacy as most treasure joy. I think that's really the part of training of wilderness. That you are becoming man and woman of God. It's not that you really like this gold and silver and fame and pleasure and all these addictions, but you have to strive so hard to love God more. Actually, through wilderness and through pain and sufferings, the love of God and things of God and God himself becomes so much more pleasurable. This year, our vision will never be accomplished to love one another deeply unless you and I experience the deep, never-ending love of God to experience into that. Are you ready for it? Do you believe? Do you trust? Will you trust that with me? That God is about to do a new revival among us. And if I am true to you as your pastor, there's nothing more that I can that I want than you experience God's deeper love this year. That you would overflow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the insights from your scripture. And many of us are convinced, but then yet fearful of pain and suffering. We're afraid of getting hurt, experiencing more difficulties. But we pray, Father, we your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we might have a faith is eyes and faith is heart to love you to experience you and may we see the wilderness in our lives with different perspectives and we'll welcome you Holy Spirit your work within our hearts and among us so that we may love one another deeply reflecting God's love for us in the name of the Father of the Son of the Holy Spirit Amen